the Comanche Wars, otherwise known as the Texas Indian Wars. There were a series of conflicts between settlers in Texas and the Southern Plains Indians, as well as Mexico, all the way down to the Mexican city, the capital of Mexico. During the 19th century. Conflict between the Plains Indians and the Spanish began before other European and Anglo-American settlers were encouraged, first by Spain and then by newly independent Mexican government, to colonize Texas in order to provide a protective settlement buffer in Texas between the Plains Indians and the rest of Mexico. As a consequence, conflict between Anglo-American settlers and Plains Indians occurred during the Texas colonial period as part of Mexico. The conflicts continued after Texas secured its independence from Mexico in 1836 and did not end until 30 years after Texas became a state of the United States, when in 1875 the last free brand of Plains Indians, the Comanches, led by Cahati warrior Quanah Parker, surrendered and moved to the Fort Sill Reservation in Oklahoma. This is a part of the Greater American Indian Wars, and the greater extent of Mexican-Indian War history. Specifically, this took place from 1820 to 1875 in the 19th century. Its location was what we know as present-day Texas and extending in campaigns all the way to Mexico City, Mexico. The result was a Texan and United States victory, as well as in large part a Mexican victory. Destruction of many indigenous nations were the result, including the Karankwa and the Akakisi and Baidai extinctions. The belligerents were Spain until the Spanish Empire in the Western um, Hemisphere it was shrank only to Cuba. That was until 1821. Then it was taken over by Mexico, the controller of Texas. Then the newly independent Republic of Texas from 1836 to 1846, as well as the Choctaw Indian Republic, the United States federal government, the Confederate States of America from 1851 to 1865, the Comanche Nations, and their indigenous nation allies, including the Kiowa, the Lipan Apache, the Karankawa, and many others. The more than half a century struggle between the Plains tribes and the Texans became particularly intense after the Spanish and then Mexicans left power in Texas. The Republic of Texas, which was largely settled by Anglo-Americans, was a threat to the indigenous people of the region. The wars between the Plains Indians and the Texas settlers and later the United States Army was characterized by deep animosity slaughter on both sides, and in the end, near total conquest of the Indian territories. Although several native tribes occupied territory in the area, the preeminent nation was the Comanche, known as the Lords of the Plains. Their territory, the Comancheria, was the most powerful entity and persistently hostile to the Spanish, the Mexicans, and the Texans, and finally, the Americans. The Comanche were known as fierce warriors, with a reputation for looting, burning, murdering, and kidnapping as far south as Mexico City. When Sol Ross rescued the Cynthia Ann Parker at Pease River, he observed that this event would be felt in every family in Texas, as everyone had lost someone in the Indian Wars. During the American Civil War, when the U.S. Army was unavailable to protect the frontier, the Comanche and Kiowa pushed white settlements back more than 100 miles along the Texas frontier. First, we must know about the enemy, Rise of the Comanche. Until around the mid-17th century, the Comanche were part of the Soshani people living along the Upper Platte River in present-day Wyoming. Once they acquired horses, which gave them greater mobility and hunting access, the Comanche became a separate tribe from the Soshone. 
Their original migration took them to the southern Great Plains into the span of territory extending from the Arkansas River to the central Texas Plains. Their population increased dramatically because of the abundance of buffalo and the use of horse for hunting and fighting. The adoption of other migrating Shoshone and women and children taken captive during raids and warfare. The Comanche based their warfare on speed and calculated violence, developing superb light cavalry skills. Ultimately, their warriors made such effective use of the horse that the Comanche became the most powerful Indian nation of the plains. When the Comanche encountered and entered conflict first against Spanish colonists, they blocked Spanish expansion to the east from New Mexico and prevented direct communication with the new Spanish settlements north of the Rio Grande. In turn, the Comanche and eventually Apache allies launched deep raids, sending hundreds of warriors into Mexico. They successfully captured and enslaved or adopted into the tribe thousands of Hispanics, Anglos, and Indians of Mexican origin. Eventually, the numbers were so large that persons not born Comanche made up nearly 30% of the Comanche nation. The Comanches were decentralized. Historically, they did not form a single cohesive tribal unit, but were divided into almost a dozen autonomous groups. The bands were had as many as 45 distinct subdivisions each. These groups shared the same language and culture, but at times fought internally in ritualized combat, even as they cooperated at other times fighting the enemies. War with the Sedot Go. Prior 1750. The Apaches were highly influential in West Texas, but this changed with the Comanche incursion. Beginning in the 1740s, the Comanche began crossing the Arkansas River and established themselves on margins of the Llano Estacado. This area extends from the southwestern Oklahoma across the Texas Panhandle into New Mexico. The Apaches were driven out in a series of wars and the Comanche came to control the area. This domain extended south from the Arkansas River across central Texas to the vicinity of San Antonio, including the entire Edwards Plateau west of the Pecos River, and then north again following the foothills of the Rocky Mountains to the Arkansas River. Alliances with other tribes After driving out the Apaches, the Comanches were stricken by a smallpox epidemic from 1780 to 1781. As the epidemic was very severe, the Comanche temporarily suspended raids and some Comanche divisions were disbanded. A second smallpox epidemic struck during the winter of 1816 to 1817. The best estimates are that more than half the total population of the Comanche were killed by these epidemics. In response to this devastating loss of numbers, the Comanche effectively allied with the Kiowa and the Kiowa Apache after one Kiowa warrior spent a fall season with the Comanche in 1790. Fehrenbach believes the Union came from the necessity to protect their hunting grounds from settler incursions. First, the Kiowa and the Comanche agreed to share hunting grounds and unite in war. The Kiowa Apache, as allies of the Kiowa, ultimately joined this alliance. Eventually, the three tribes agreed to share the same hunting grounds and had a mutual self-defense and war pact. The aftermath and analysis of this war are that many tribes in Texas, such as the Karankawan, Akakasi, and the Baidai, and others were destroyed by disease and with the prolonged 50-year conflict with settlers, and eventually driven out of their lands onto reservation by the numerically and technologically superior United States Army. The Akakasas may have been absorbed into other tribes at the wake of the Texas Revolution, while members of the Badai joined neighboring tribes after epidemics reduced their numbers by over half. According to author Gary Anderson, the Rangers believed the Indians were at best subhumans who had no right of the soil and savaged pure, noble, and innocent settlers. 
according to books by captives of the period, such as the boy captives and the nine years with the Indians. The rangers were only force feared by the Indians. Killing Indians became government policy when President of Texas Lamar prescribed an extermination war, or war of total extinction. In the Texian side, almost every family at that time admitted to losing someone in the Indian Wars. Disease brought largely by Europeans caused a dramatic decline of the native population. Anthropologist John C. Ewers has identified no fewer than 30 major epidemics, consisting mainly of smallpox and cholera, which took place between the years 1528 and 1890 which he believes were responsible for wiping out close to 95% of Texas' Indian population. Over half of the Comanche population was wiped out in the epidemics between 1780 to 1781, and again in 1816 and 1817. Many historians believe their population went from over 200,000 to less than 8,000 in these two rounds of disease. Thus, while technology and warfare with Anglo-Texans may have completed the process, the foremost cause of decline in the Plains Indians came from the diseases brought by the conflict and their ever-increasing uh, contact with European settlers. Uh, settlers. At the time of the Texas Revolution, there were 30,000 Anglo-nomadic colonists and Mexican mestizos in Texas and approximately 20,000 Comanches plus thousands each of Cherokee, Shawnee, Coshata, and a dozen other tribes like Karankawa. Colonists were armed with single-shot weapons then, which the Comanche in particular had learned very well to counter. Certainly the Spanish, then the Mexicans, and later the Texians had learned that single-shot weapons were not enough to defeat the deadly Comanche light horse, whose mastery of cavalry tactics and mounted bowmanship and archery were renowned. The Comanche's constant movement caused many of their opponents' older single-shot weapons to miss their targets in the chaos of battle. The Comanche could then easily kill their enemies before they had a chance to reload. And though it was understated, the Comanche learned to use single-shot firearms quite well, although they found bows superior in terms of rate of fire. The Comanche put an end to Spanish expansion in North America. They did what no other indigenous peoples had managed. They defended their homeland, even expanded their homelands in return. In the face of the best military forces the Spanish could bring against them, those that had toppled the Aztec and Incan empires, they had failed when fighting the nomadic, mobile warriors of the Comanche. In the late 18th century, the Comanche were said to have stolen every horse in New Mexico for example, which was then owned by the Spanish. Up until the introduction of repeated rifles and revolvers, weapons and tactics were definitely on the side of the Plains Indians, most especially the Comanche. It was not until the Battle of Bandera Pass where revolvers were used for the first time against the Comanche that the Texians began to gain a clear military advantage by superior weaponry, provided then by the Industrial Revolution. Despite their disadvantage, it was disease and pure numbers which probably ended the Plains tribes, though. By 1860, there were fewer than 8,000 Indians compared to the 600,000 colonists in Texas. started in Mexican Texas in 1821 to 1836. In the 1820s, seeking additional colonists as a means of conquering the area, Mexico reached an agreement with Austin reauthorizing his Spanish land grants that allowed several hundred American families to move into the region. As Austin used his network and government sponsors to spread the word of rich lands in Texas, thousands of additional colonists from the United States flooded into the region, mainly illegal. Many had no interest in being ruled by the government of Mexico, which 
1829, when Mexico abolished slavery throughout Mexico, the immigrants from the U.S. were exempted in some colonies or actively evaded government efforts to enforce this abolition in their territory. Under the change, many slaves in Mexico were reclassified as indentured servants, or as bondsmen, with the long-term goal of freedom. Americans did not like this policy and also objected to the central government's action in tightening political and economic control over the territory. Eventually, these tensions resulted in the Texas Revolution. In 1821, while colonists were still welcome, Jose Francisco Ruiz negotiated a truce with the Pentaca Comanche, the band closest to the settlements in the east and central Texas. Following that truce, he was able to complete a treaty of peace and friendship, which was signed in Mexico City in December of 1821. Within 12 months, the Mexican government failed to pay the presents promised to the Pentuca Comanche, who resumed raiding at once. For the same reason, the peace treaty signed in New Mexico broke down. By 1823, war raged the entire length of the Rio Grande, from the Gulf of Mexico to New Mexico. Most of the remaining Mexican settlements were destroyed. Only those in the upper Rio Grande were secured. Thousands of surviving Mexicans refu refugees fled to this area. The Comanche pushed out or killed most Europeans and Mexicans in the region except the European-American Texans. In 1824, the Tonkawa entered into a treaty with Austin, pledging their support against the Comanche. The Mexican government negotiated additional treaties signed in 1826 and 1834, but in each case failed to meet the terms of the agreements. Although such events would, would have proven catastrophic in early years as the Comanche raided towards Mexico City, the presence of American militias obstructed such attacks. Thereby, they encouraged the Mexicans to become dilatory in payments. Because Comanche raiding was based on taking uh, slaves and captives, the proximity of American communities proved more fruitful to Comanche raiding. Although Texan military force was much stronger than previous Mexican colonists, the sheer rapidity of advance and large numbers of the raiders overwhelmed many of these early Texan colonists as well. For example, in 1826, the Comanches raided and burned Green DeWitt's new town of Gonzales to the ground. During the period of 1821 to 1835, colonists had difficulty with Comanche raids, despite the formation of full-time militia ranger companies in 1823. Tonkawa and Lenape tribes, enemies of the Comanche, allied with the new immigrants, trying to gain allies themselves against these traditional enemies. The Comanche detested the Tonkawa, and particularly for being alleged cannibals. As early as 1823, Austin recognized the need to have specific forces designated to fight the Plains tribes, especially the Comanche. They did not distinguish between Mexicans and Americans in their raids. Austin created the first rangers by hiring 10 men. They were paid to fight Indians and protect the colonial settlements. Soon the colonists organized additional ranger companies. After the Republic was created, this trend continued. Without the resource for standing army, Texas created small ranger companies mounted on fast horses to pursue and fight Comanches on their own terms. Fort Parker Raid On May 19, 1836, a huge war party of Comanche, Kiowa, Wichita, and Delaware attacked the colonist outpost of Fort Parker. Completed in March 1834, it had been regarded by the colonists as a stronghold sufficient to protect them from any Native Americans not observing the peace treaties Elder John Parker had negotiated with local Indians. Because these Native Americans were subject nations to the Comanche, the tribe did not feel bound to observe the peace. The killing of colonists' militia at Fort Parker also resulted in the Comanche taking two women and three children as captives. The Parkers were well known, and the destruction of most of their clan produced shock throughout Texas. Survivors, especially James W. Parker, called for vengeance and helped to recover the captives. This event took place near the close of the Texas Revolution and Texan victory at the Battle of San Jacinto on April 21, 1836. Most Texans were busy trying to return to what was left of the former homes and dealing with their own losses as well as skirmishes with the retreating Mexican army to provide assistance. During the Republic of Texas between 1836 and 1845, the Republic of Texas 
saw that the Indians can be divided into three phases. The diplomacy of President Sam Houston during his first term and his handling of it, the hostility of President Marabou B. Lamar and his handling of it, and the resumed diplomatic efforts of Houston's second term as president. Houston led the Republic to negotiate with the Comanche. They said they would stop raiding if they were given sufficient amounts of what they considered prerequisites for peaceful relations. Gifts, trading, and regular face-to-face diplomacy with Texas' leadership. Houston, who enjoyed a good reputation among Indians, had married a mixed-race woman of Cherokee descent. He had lived in Indian territory for years and learned about their cultures. He was willing to meet with Comanche on their terms and believed as a matter of policy that it was worth it to buy a few thousand dollars worth of presents for lasting established peace. The Republicans could not support the huge cost of a standing army for defense, and it might not be able to defeat the assembled might of the entire Comanche-Kiowa alliance, even if they could raise an army, especially if they received Mexican help. Texans were disturbed by accounts of the continued captivity of thousands of children and women, especially because the stories by those rescued are ransomed. They made increasing demands for the Republic to retaliate against the Comanche on moral grounds. Under President Lamar, the Republic of Texas waged war on the Comanche, breaking Sam Houston's original treaties. They invaded Comancheria, which was the unofficially or the unrecognized um, territorial lands of the Comanche nation. They burned villages, attacked and destroyed numerous war bands, but the effort bankrupted the fledgling republic. More importantly, although the Texas forces succeeded in rescuing large numbers of hostages, thousands remained in captivity. Houston was elected to a second term in large part because of the failure of President Lamar's Indian policies and the unpopularity of the war. The first Houston administration between 1836 and 1838. Houston's first presidency was focused on maintaining the Republic of Texas as an independent country. He had no resources to fight a full-scale war against the Plains Indians. Houston had spent much of his childhood with the Cherokee Indians in Tennessee. Among them, the Cherokee chief, Boles. Bowles later led a group of Cherokee who migrated into Texas trying to escape from Indian removal by the United States Federal Army out of the southeastern United States. Houston supported the Solemn Declaration, which gave the Cherokee rights to the land in Texas which they lived. He negotiated a treaty with the Cherokee and other tribes on February 23, 1836 in the Chief Bowles Village. It was the first treaty made by the Republic of Texas, signed by allied tribes including the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Kickapoo, the Quapaw, the Biloxi, the Ioni, the Alabama, the Coshada, and the Caddo, the Hakalak, and the Matiko. The areas granted in the treaty included present-day Smith and Cherokee counties and parts of Van Zant, Rusk, and Gregg counties. The treaty stated that these lands could not be sold or leased to anyone who was not a member of the tribe, including Texas citizens. After the signing of this treaty, Houston presented Chief Bowles with a sword, a red silk vest, and a sash. One of the Houston's first acts as presidents of the Republic was to send the treaty to be ratified by the Texas Senate. After the treaty stalled in the Senate for a year, lawmakers decided that it would be detrimental to the citizens of Texas reportedly because settler David G. Burnett had already been granted a tract of land within what were defined as Cherokee Treaty lands. The treaty was declared null and void on December 26, 1837. Throughout his presidency, Houston tried to restore the provisions of the treaty and asked General Thomas J. Rusk, commander of the Texas militia, to delineate the boundary. He was unsuccessful in his effort, and Houston could take no more action on the matter before his presidency ended. During Houston's presidency, the Texas Rangers fought the Battle of Stone Houses against the Kitschai on November 10, 1837. They were outnumbered and defeated. The Indian problems of the first Houston administration were symbolized by the Cordova Rebellion. Evidence existed that a widespread conspiracy of Cherokee Indians and Mexicans had united to rebel against the new Republic of Texas and rejoin Mexico. Houston did not believe that his friends among the Cherokee were involved and refused to order them arrested. 
He used them to neutralize the anti-Texans among the group, identifying the Mexican network and having its members killed. The Cordova Rebellion was an example of Houston's ability to quash it without much bloodshed or wide unrest. When Houston left office, the Texans were at peace with the Indians, but many captives were still held out by the tribe's bands. The Texas Congress passed laws opening up all Indian lands to white settlement and overrode Houston's veto. The settlement frontier quickly moved north along the Brazos, the Colorado, and the Guadalupe Rivers, into Comanche hunting ranges and the borders of Camancheria. As a result, the Texan-Comanche relationship turned violent. Houston made efforts to restore peace, and the Comanches, alarmed at the vigor of Texan settlement, considered a fixed boundary contrary to their traditional notions about borders. However, Houston was forbidden by Texas law to yield any land claimed by the Republic. He still made peace with the Comanche in 1838 despite these developments. When Lamar, Maribu Bonaparte Lamar, took presidency as the second president of the Republic of Texas in 1838 to 1841, things changed. He was hostile towards the natives. Lamar's cabinet boasted that it would remove Houston's pet Indians. In 1839, Lamar announced his policy. The white man and the red man cannot dwell in harmony together, he said. Nature forbids it. His answer to the Indian problem was to push a rigorous war against them, pursuing them to hiding places without mitigation or compassion, until they shall be made to feel that flight from our borders without hope of return is preferable to the scourges of our war. Lamar was the first official of Texas to attempt removal, the deportation of Indian tribes to places beyond the reach of white settlers. As carried out, the policy was based on establishing a permitted Texas frontier, i.e. a line behind which the various removed tribes would be able to carry on their lives from free white settlement or attacks. Lamar became convinced that the Cherokee could not be allowed to stay in Texas after their part in the 1838-1839 Cadova Rebellion, and after some disaffected Cherokee car- carried out the 1838-Kilo Massacre. This would lead into the Cherokee War, and subsequently removal of the Cherokee from Texas began shortly after Lamar took office. Lamar demanded that the Cherokee, who had been promised title to their land if they remained neutral during the Texas War of Independence, voluntarily relinquish their lands and all their property and move to the Indian Territory of the United States, southwestern Oklahoma. Houston, who had promised the Cherokee during the Cordova Rebellion that they would be given their promised titles, protested in vain. And in May 1839, Lamar's administration learned of a letter in the possession of one Manuel Flores, an agent of the Mexican government, exposing plans by officials to enlist the Comanche and Cherokee Indians against the Texas settlers. Supported by popular opinion in the Republic, Lamar decided to expel the Cherokee Indians from East Texas. When they refused, he used force to compel their removal. On July 12, 1839, the militia sent a peace commission to negotiate for the Indians' removal. The Cherokee reluctantly agreed to sign a treaty of removal that guaranteed them the profit from their crops and the cost of their removal. During the next 48 hours, the Cherokee insisted they would leave peacefully but refused to sign the treaty because of a clause in the treaty that would require that they be escorted out of Texas under armed guard. On July 15, 1839, under orders from the militia, the commissioners told the Indians that the Texans would march on their village immediately and that those willing to leave peacefully should fly a white flag. On July 15, 16, 1839, a combined militia force under General K.H. Douglas, Ed Burleson, Albert Sidney Johnston and David G. Burnett attacked the Cherokees, the Delaware Indians, and the Shawnee that were under Cherokee Chief Bowles at the Battle of Neches. The Indians attempted to resist at the village, and when that failed, they tried to reform, which also failed. Approximately 100 Indians were killed, including Chief Bowles, to only three militia dead. When killed, Chief Bowles was carrying the sword given to him by Sam Houston. After the battle, the Cherokee fled to the Choctaw Nation in northern Mexico. 
meaning East Texas was virtually free of organized communities of Indians, and their lands guaranteed by treaty were then given to American settlers. Lamar and the Plains Tribes Lamar's success in ethnically cleansing the Cherokee, a neutral tribe, former ally of Texians, from East Texas, emboldened him to do the same with the Plains Tribes in the West and North. Lamar needed an army to carry out this Indian policy, and he set out to build one at great cost. But at Independence, the best estimates were at the Republic had 30,000 Anglo-Americans and Tejano Hispanic residents. The Cherokee had less than 2,000 tribesmen in Texas at their peak, so removal of them was not a terrible drain on the Republic or its resources, especially since the Cherokee War was relatively brief and bloodless for Texas, though certainly not for the Cherokee. The Comanche and Kiowa, however, had in the 1830s alone a population estimated between 20,000 and 30,000 each. They were well supplied with high quality firearms and had a large surplus of war horses. In addition, by the 1830s, the Comanche had established a large network of Indian allies and a vast trading network amongst the Indian Plains nations. The Republic had a militia, but no standing army, and its tiny navy had been greatly decreased during President Sam Houston's presidency to save costs. Lamar had neither the manpower nor the money to pursue his policy after the Cherokee War, but was not deterred. Lamar's term was marked by an escalation in violence between the Comanche and the colonists. There were not enough rangers to battle the Comanche at Palo Duro Canyon, for instance, where they could catch them during the winter. At the end of 1839, however, some of the Comanche chiefs at the Panataka Band had come to believe they could not drive the colonists completely from their homes as they had the Apache, Cheyenne, or the Arapo. And attacks along the northern border of Comanche territory coupled with huge losses in the two preceding generations from uh, smallpox epidemics had the Comanche chiefs convinced a treaty might be in their best interests. Additionally, they now realized the huge importance the captive Texans held by the Comanches had in the Texan imagination. Thus, they reasoned great concessions could be gained from the Texans. Consequently, the Comanche offered to meet with the Texans in an effort to negotiate peace in return for a recognized boundary between the Republic and Comancheria, and the return of the Texian hostages. The most notable Panatica war chief, Buffalo Hump, which in his language was named Potsanakawahippo, disagreed with the decision and did not trust Lamar or his representatives. None of the other 11 bands of the Comanche were involved in the peace talks at all. The decision of chiefs from one band at the Comanche to negotiate, as well as the offer of returning their hostages, appears to have convinced President Lamar that the Comanche tribe at whole was ready to surrender their hostages in entirety. However, the majority of past negotiations concerning the hostages were never honored by the Comanche, who obtained concessions but did not return the hostages or dragged out indefinitely the terms to return them. Secretary of War Albert Sidney Johnston issued instructions which made clear that Lamar expected the Comanche to act in good faith in returning the hostages and to yield to his threats of force. Johnston sent militia to San Antonio with explicit instructions. Should the Comanche come and without bringing them the prisoners, it is understood they have agreed to do to detain them. Some of their number will be dispatched as messengers to their tribe to inform them of those detained, but they will be held as hostages until the prisoners are delivered up. Then the hostages will be released. This led directly to the council house fight. 33 Penataka chiefs and warriors accompanied by 32 other Comanches arrived in San Antonio on March 19, 1840 to meet with Texas officials. 
Commissioners of the Texas government demanded the return of all captives held by the Penataka. In addition, Texas officials insisted that Comanches abandon Central Texas, cease interfering with Texas settlements, cease conspiring with Mexicans, and avoid all white settlements. The prominent Penataka chief and medicine man, Mark Ruru, otherwise known as Spirit Talker, was in charge of the delegation. The Comanche chiefs at the meeting had brought along one white captive, Matilda Lockhart, and several Mexican children who had been captured. The talks were held at the council house, a one-story stone building adjoining the jail on the corner of Main Plaza and Calabosa Market Street. During the council, the Comanche warriors sat on the floor, as was their custom, while the Texians sat on chairs on a platform facing them. Lockhart had informed them that she had been seen or she had seen 15 other prisoners at the Comanche's principal camp several days before. She maintained that the Indians had wanted to see how high a price they could get for her and that they would then planned to bring in the remaining captives one at a time, increasing the price. The Texians demanded to know where the other captives were. McRuru responded that other prisoners were held by differing bands of the Comanche. He assured the Texians that he felt the other captives would be able to be ransomed, but it would be in exchange for a great deal of supplies, including ammunition and blankets. He then finished his speech with the comment, How do you like that answer? The Texian militia entered the courtroom and positioned themselves at intervals on the walls. When the Comanches would not or could not promise to return all captives immediately, the Texas officials said that chiefs would be held hostage until the white captives were released. The interpreter warned that Texian officials that if they delivered that message, the Comanches would attempt to escape by fighting. He was instructed to relay the warning and left the room as soon as he finished translating. After learning that they were being held hostage, the Comanches attempted to fight their way out of the room using arrows and knives. The Texian soldiers opened fire at point-blank range, killing both Indians and whites. The Comanche women and children waiting outdoors began firing their arrows after hearing the commotion inside. At least one Texian spectator was killed this way. When a small number of warriors managed to leave the council house, all of the Comanche began to flee. The soldiers who followed again opened fire, killing and wounding both Comanche and Texian spectators. Armed citizens joined the battle, but claiming they could not differentiate between warriors and the women and children since all the Comanches were fighting, shot all of the Comanches present. According to Anderson, such confusion between Native American men and women was convenient to the Texians, who used it as an excuse to kill the women and children, regardless if they were fighting. According to the report by Colonel Hugh McLeod, written March 20, 1840, of the 65 members of the Comanche's party, 35 were killed, 30 adult males, 3 women, and 2 children. 29 were taken prisoner, 27 women and children, and 2 old men, and 1 departed unobserved, described as a renegade Mexican. 7 Texians died including a judge, a sheriff, and an army lieutenant, with ten more wounded. The Great Raid and Battle of Plum Creek As revenge for the killing of the 33 Comanche chiefs at the council house fight, all but three of the remaining captives held by the Indians were executed slowly by torture. The three were spared had been previously adopted into the tribe officially. Chief Buffalo Hump wished to exact further revenge and gathered his own warriors and sent messengers to all the bands of the Comanche, all the divisions of the bands, and the Kiowa and the Kiowa Apache. Most of all Comanche chiefs joined the raid, gathering around 500 warriors and another 400 women and boys to provide comfort and do the work. Buffalo Hump took his war party and raided all the way from the Edwards Plateau to the Gulf, burning and looting Victoria and Linville, then the second biggest port in Texas. The Comanches gathered thousands of horses and mules and a fortune in goods from the Linville warehouse, 
the population of Linville prudently fled to the waters of the Gulf, where they watched helplessly on a ship while the Comanche looted the town and burned it. At Plum Creek near Lockhart, the Rangers and militia caught up to the Comanche. Several hundred militia under Matthew Caldwell and Ed Burleson, plus all the Ranger companies and their Tonkawa allies, who were trackers and scouts, engaged the war party in a huge running gun battle. The Rangers and militia overran the Comanche guarding their loot and eventually in a running gunfight recovered several dozen captives held by the Comanche and eventually recovered mules with several hundred thousand dollars in bullion on them. The remainder of the Lamar presidency was spent in daring but exhausting rounds of raids and rescue attempts managing to recover several dozen more captives. Buffalo Hump uh, Buffalo Hump continued his war against the Texans, and Lamar hoped for another pitched battle to use his rangers and militia to remove the Plains tribes. The Comanche, however, had learned from Plum Creek and had no intention of massing again for the militia to use cannons and massed rifle fire on them. Lamar spent $2.5 million against the Comanche in 1840, more than the entire revenue of the Republic during Lamar's two-year term. The second Houston presidency between 1841 and 1844 saw Sam Houston entering his second term as president after the Great Raid and subsequently hundreds of lesser raids, with the Republic now bankrupt and all of the captives either recovered or murdered by the Indians in revenge. Texans turned away from the continuation of war and toward more diplomatic initiatives by electing Sam Houston to a second presidency. Houston's Indian policy was to disband the vast majority of the regular army troops that Lamar had created but muster four new companies of rangers to patrol the frontier. Houston ordered the rangers to protect the Indian lands from encroachment by settlers and illegal traders as well. Houston wanted to do away with the cycle of rage and revenge that had spiraled out of control under Lamar, as well as the white European Anglo-Texian favoritism that led to the Great Raids. Under Houston's policies, Texas Rangers were authorized to punish severely any infractions by the Indians, but they were never to initiate such conflicts. When depredations occur to either side, the troops are ordered to find and punish the actual guilty perpetrators, rather than retaliating against innocent Indians simply because they were Indians. Houston set out to negotiate with the Indians. The Caddo's were the first to respond, and in August 1842, a treaty was reached. Houston then expanded to all tribes except the Comanche, who still wanted permanent war. In March of 1843, Houston reached agreement with the Delaware, the Wichita's, and other tribes. At that point, Buffalo Hump, who trusted Houston, began to talk. In August 1843, a temporary treaty according to lead to a ceasefire between the Comanches and their allies, and the Texians, in October of 1843. The Comanches agreed to meet Houston to try to negotiate a treaty similar to the one at Fort Byrd. This included Buffalo Hump after the events of the Council House, showing extraordinary Comanche belief in Sam Houston's diplomacy. In early 1844, Buffalo Hump and other Comanche leaders, including Santa Ana and Old Owl, signed a treaty at the Teocana Creek in which they agreed to surrender white captives in total and to cease raiding Texan settlements. In exchange for this, the Texans would cease military action against the tribe, establishing more trading posts with them and recognizing the boundary between Texas and Camancheria. Comanche allies, including the Waco, the Tawakani, the Kiowa, the Kiowa Apache, and the Wichita, also agreed to join the treaty. By the end of the second term, a president, Sam Houston, had spent less than $250,000 USA, brought peace to the frontier, and a treaty between the Comanches and their allies was reached, and the Republic waited only the United States legislator's ratification for statehood. Following Sam Houston, the remaining period of the Republic of Texas fell under President Anson Jones from 1845 to 1846. 
had the government follow Sam Houston's policies with the exception that Jones, like most Texan uh, politicians, did not wish to put a boundary on Comancheria officially recognizing in the Indian lands. Thus, he supported those in the legislature who derailed the provisions of the treaty subtly, loosening a lot of the respect that had been gained in the Houston administration. Excuse me. This would roll over into Texas being a state. And this would be the beginning of the end of the Plains Indians as a nation. On February 28, 1845, the U.S. Congress passed a bill and authorized the United States to annex the Republic of Texas. Texas became a U.S. state the same day annexation took effect, December 29, 1845. One of the primary motivations for the annexation of the Republic of Texas side was the Republic had encouraged huge debts which the United States agreed to assume upon annexation. In 1852, in return for this assumption of debt, a large portion of Texas claimed territory now parts of Colorado, Kansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, and Wyoming was ceded to the federal government. The United States had the resources and the manpower to realistically apply a policy of forced removal, which was the United States federal policy, and they did so. In May 1846, Buffalo Hump became convinced that even he could not continue to defy the massed might of the United States and their cavalry and the state of Texas as well with their rangers. So he led the Comanche delegation to the treaty talks at Council Springs that signed a treaty with the United States. As the war chief of the Comanches, Buffalo Hump dealt peacefully with the American officials throughout the late 1840s and into the 1850s. He negotiated a non-government peace treaty with John O. Mossabach in 1847, for example. And he, in 1849, he even worked for the Texans, guiding John S. Ford's expedition part of the way from San Antonio to El Paso. And in 1856, he led his people to the newly established Comanche Reservation on the Brazos River. But the years of 1856 to 1858 were particularly vicious and bloody on the Texas frontier. As settlers continued to expand their settlements deep into Camancheria, and 1858 was marked by the first Texan incursion to the heart of Camancheria, the so-called Antelope Hills Expedition. This was marked by the Battle of Little Robe Creek. And the battle signaled the beginning of the end of the Comanche as a viable people as they were successfully attacked in force in the heart of their domain. Valuable Indian hunting grounds were plowed under, and grazing range for the Comanche horse herds lost to steers, bulls, and cattle, especially the Longhorn, which could survive in the rocky hill country or in the arid lands of the West. The Comanche realized their homeland was increasingly encroached on by Texas settlers, and the expedition showed that Comanches off the reservation they could expect no protection by their allies, or their former allies, and they stuck back with a series of ferocious and bloody raids and re- as revenge into Texas. By 1858, only five of the twelve Comanche bands still existed. And one, the Penataka, had dwindled to only a few hundred members permanently on a reservation. No longer were they the nomadic lords of the plain, masters of the horse and the bow, but were going extinct due to the epidemics and the increasingly large numbers of their enemies, which bore generational vendettas that were gaining technological and numerical uh, superiority and the Comanche nation was bleeding to death. The Battle of Little Robe Creek epitomized Texas Indian fighting and its attitude towards women and children casualties. 
the leader of the Texan expedition, Ford, accused of killing women and children in every battle he fought against the Plains Indians, shrugged it off by stating it was hard to distinguish warriors from squaws. But morbid jokes of Ford's made clear he did not care about the age or sex of his victims. Ford considered the deaths of settlers, including women and children, during Indian raids to open the door to make all Indians, regardless of age or sex, combatants and targets of revenge. The Tonkawa warriors with the rangers celebrated the victory by decorating their horses with the bloody hands and feet severed from their Comanche victims as trophies. The rangers noted most of their dead foes were missing various body parts, and the Tonkawa had bloody containers pretending a dreadful victory feast that evening. The coat of mail worn by old iron jacket covered his dead body like shingles on a roof. The rangers cut up the mail and divided the pieces as trophies amongst themselves. The attacks on the Antelope Hills showed that the Comanche no longer were able to assure the safety of their villages, even in the heart of the Comancheria nation. Other Indians never forgot the Tonkawas allying with the Texan colonists. Despite pleas from the aging Placido to protect his people from their enemies, the Tonka were removed from the reservations on the Brazos and put on a reservation in Oklahoma with the Delaware, the Shawnee, and the Caddo tribes. In 1862, warriors from these tribes united to attack the Tonkawa survivors. 133 out of the remaining 309 Tonkawas that had participated in the Battle of Antelope Hills were killed in the massacre. Including in the dead was the elderly Placido. Today, less than 15 families of the Tonkawa tribes remain on that reservation in Oklahoma. This leads to the end of Buffalo Hump. October 1st, 1858. While camped on the Richita Mountains from the Katsuko Band under Kahetomi, the Yambaraka Band under Hoteyakoat, and probably the Nokini Band under Kanawa, the remains of the once mighty Penateka Band under Buffalo Hump were attacked by United States troops under the command of Major Earl Van Dorn. Allegedly not aware that Buffalo Hump's band had recently signed a formal peace treaty with the United States of America, Van Dorn and his men killed 80 of the Comanches. This attack on a peaceful camp housing Indians who had signed a peace treaty with the United States was nonetheless reported by Van Dorn as a battle with the Comanche war chief Buffalo Hump and to this day is chronicled by some historians as the Battle of Wichita Mountains. Nonetheless, an aged and weary Buffalo Hump led and settled his remaining followers on the Kiowa Comanche Reservations near Fort Cobb in Indian Territory in Oklahoma. There, in spite of his reported and enormous sadness at the end of the Comanche's traditional way of life, he asked for a house and farmland so that he could set an example for his people. Attempting to live out his life as a rancher and farmer, he died in 1870 which is officially considered the end of the Comanche Wars, as well as the Texan-Indian Wars. Another battle of renown is the Battle of Peace River, 1860. There are two distinctly different stories about what happened on Mule Creek in December 18th, 1860, near Margaret, Texas, in Ford County. The official version is that Sol Ross and his forces managed to catch the Kahiti Band of the Comanche by surprise and wipe them out, including the leader, Pita Nakona. According to the son of Pita Nakona, the Kana Parker, his father was not present that day, and the Comanches were virtually all women and children in a buffalo hide drying and meat curing camp from a hunt. In any event, all parties agree that at sunrise on December 18, 1860, Texas Rangers and militiamen under Sol Ross found and surprised a group of Comanches camped on Mule Creek, a tributary of the Peace River. Almost all, including a gallant warrior, Noba, 
who died pr- trying to protect his chief's wife and daughter, were killed except one woman, who, being recognized as a white woman, was allowed to live. She was later discovered to be Cynthia Ann Parker. The only other known survivors were a 10-year-old boy saved by Sol Ross and Cynthia Parker's infant daughter, Prairie Flower. Cynthia Ann Parker was returned to her white family, who watched her very closely to prevent her from returning to her husband and children of the Comanche tribes. After her daughter died from influenza, she starved herself to death when her guardians would not allow her to return to the Comanche to attempt to find her lost sons. Cynthia Ann Parker, by the way, was a woman who was captured by the Comanche during the Fort Parker Massacre in 1836. Several of her relatives were killed. She was taken by her younger brother, John Richard Parker, and cousin James Pratt Plummer. Parker was later adopted into the tribe and had three children with a chief. 24 years later, she was relocated and taken captive by Texas Rangers during that battle. She was approximately age 33 when that happened. And she began, she was publicly unwilling to separate from her sons and conform to European American society. She is a folk icon and the early days of Texas, with much of the military actions for the Texas Indian Wars being entirely inspired by her story, including the need to rescue not only her personally, but others like her. To have her then be rescued while slaughtering innocent women and children of the Comanche tribe, and then to have her refuse to be reassimilated into Texas life, have her reject European settlers, having her daughter die of disease, and having her starve herself to death, I believe is the perfect way to symbolize and embody, incarnate the entire spiritual fate the physical fate as well of the Comanche nation of Comancheria during the events of the Texas Indian Wars. They say that there are no winners in war, but there definitely are losers, and woe to the vanquished. Be thankful that you live in a time of peace for those listening out there in dreamland. Be thankful that you don't suffer the hardships of those who are your ancestors and who literally paved the way for the states of progress and peace that we currently live in. And be thankful You are not the victims of that sword of progress that cuts your culture's throat to the bone and bleeds your tribal society to death. Sacrificed on the altar of the future. Thank you so much for listening to another broadcast of the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. been broadcasting to you from the third coast, the coast of the most Gulf Coast of Texas. Thank you all very much for listening to this episode of the Texas Indian Wars. Thank you all very much. God bless you and your families. Peace out.